for a living looking after churches throughout Western Canada, uh, talking with pastors and church boards and uh, speaking in churches from Winnipeg, Manitoba across to Victoria, B.C. And so uh, that's just kind of the area. And so lots of uh, airplanes and rental cars and on the road lots. And so hearing some of the songs this morning, I was just reminded how often on a Sunday morning I'm driving sometimes uh, a couple hours to get to the church that I'm going to be speaking at. And I just love the opportunity to worship God as I'm in the car on my way on a Sunday morning and and, uh, praising Him. And so when worship leaders draw our hearts to who our God is, I'm always thankful for that time that we get to spend. And and that one song about Jesus, you know, you have no rival, you have no equal. We're going to be looking at Psalm three this morning, and it's a psalm of David. Um, I think King David would love that, that song. He was a writer of songs, a writer of psalms and songs, but I, I think that um, knowing some of his experiences, and we're going to go through uh, a negative experience that he had in his life, I think King David would have loved to join in and to sing with us on that particular song this morning, uh, just in light of where we're going in Psalm three this very day. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into our, uh, our text this morning and uh, see what God has in store for us uh, in regard to um, storms, storms that come up in our lives. And so let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is so true that you have no rival. That's an amazing statement about your authority, about your character, about your sovereignty, Lord, there's no rival. There's no one that's perhaps almost going to defeat you. There's no one who can rise up and take over and squash the plans that you have. You have no rival. You have no equal. Lord, we bow before you because of those truths. And we thank you for this book, the Bible, that shows us over and over again that that indeed you are a relational God who loved us so much that you did send your son to die on a cross for us that your love would open a door and opportunity for us to have relationship with you that we could have never had no matter how good we tried to live our lives. So Father, we give you thanks this morning and we praise you in the matchless name of your son and our savior Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Well, just last week, I was reading an article, and I came across this statement that I want to share with you this morning, because it it stuck with me, and you'll see why in a moment. The statement is this, you are either in a storm, leaving a storm, or getting ready to enter a storm. Let me read that to you again. You are either in a storm, leaving a storm, or getting ready to enter a storm. You know, when I first read that, I thought, well, that's kind of a pessimistic outlook on life. Like, come on. And then I started to ponder it a bit more, and, and I started to wrestle, well, is that actually true? Is it not true? And, and so because I wasn't sure, I decided to go to that source where you can get all the wisdom and advice that you need, and so I posted it on Facebook. Because if you ever need help, let me tell you, that's a great place to get it. Because there's all kinds of people out there uh, in my particular realm of friends that are only too happy to give me advice anytime I ask for it. So I asked for advice and uh, asked whether this was true or not, got all kinds of comments, But I think one of my favorite ones was from my friend Julie, who has two small children, and she said, if you have toddlers, that statement is very true. You are either in a storm, leaving a storm, or getting ready to enter a storm. But you know, when we think about that from a a serious standpoint, whether it's a health issue, a job issue, a marriage issue, financial issue, a child issue, an aging parent issue, or any number of other possibilities, our human experience is that we do 
go into storms. We encounter storms. And sometimes the truth might be that the storms encounter us. We don't choose the storm. We don't say, oh, well, that looks like it's going to be really difficult and hard. I think I want to go and do that. No, sometimes those things just come our way. And so what do we do? When that happens, what do we do? Well, David had a storm. He had many storms. We're just going to look at one of them this morning in Psalm 3. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with, you, turn with me to Psalm 3. I want to read the whole psalm. It's not that long. It's only eight verses long. And then we're going to unpack it and just see what was David's method for actually handling the storm that he encountered in this time in his life. And so in Psalm 3, we read these words. And I'll give you the context a little bit later so you kind of get the bigger picture as to what this is all about in David's life. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and asleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord, deliver me. O my God, strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. All right, this is great stuff, and so I look forward to unpacking it with you. And I don't know if I've ever preached on this before. It was... uh, uh, Pastor Phil, who asked me to look at this, this passage, and so I'm doing that at his request, but I'm doing it in, in with great joy because I've just found so much in here. So we're going to look at five different aspects of this psalm, and we're going to work our way through all the verses. And the first aspect is just simply the reality of verses 1 and 2. David has a problem, and interestingly, his problem is very, very close to home. His son Absalom is attempting to wrestle the kingdom from his father's hands. That alone sounds like a heartbreaking kind of situation. But if you want to turn with me to get the full context of it, turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 15, because here we get the picture of how Absalom is trying to take away the throne from his father David. Let me just read to you a few verses from 2 Samuel chapter 15. It says, In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. And he would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? And he'd answer, Well, your servant is from one of these tribes, one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that he gets justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And now listen to this. And so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said he was going to go to the king. This is a master plan years in the making. This is Absalom scheming and trying to figure out how can I, number one, win the hearts of the people away from my father, the king, and then how can I take the throne right out of his hands and become the king that I so desperately want to be. 
When we get to Psalm 3, scholars tell us that they believe this psalm was probably penned, now listen to this, on the morning of David going to go out into battle with his son Absalom. Wow. So on the morning that he knows he's got to go and confront his own son, you talk about a storm, he sits down and he's going to write out these words for us about how he's going to deal with this. In case, when I read Psalm 3 earlier, a little too quickly for you, let's again review what's going on here for David at this point in his life in this storm. There's a key word here in the first two verses that we need to hear clearly. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me. Do you get the sense that David's got this idea that he's got a big battle in front of him? And there's a lot of things going on. David had many foes. It says that the foes were rising in number. There were many skeptics of his faith. It was well known that David was a man of God who followed after him, but now their skeptics are saying, I don't think this is paying off this time. We know David trusts in God, but look, he's trusting in God, and this is he's had to leave. He's had to flee the kingdom, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. So David knows his situation. The negative forces are arrayed against him. The deck is stacked against him. And it's not just one problem that he faced. It's not just one storm that he's encountering but rather a host of going problems. Growing, growing, growing. I'm amazed how that becomes the life experience for some of us from time to time. I've had situations where I've watched people in the churches that I've pastored where it doesn't seem that they simply encounter one major problem. They encounter that problem... And then before long, there's another problem added to the list. And then before long, there's another problem added to the list. And you're looking at it where, in many situations, I wasn't dealing with any real storms. And I'm looking at their lives and I'm going, why are all these things happening? It's like life is stacked against them. They start off, their health isn't good, and then their car needs serious repairs, and then they can't pay the bills that are piling up, and their family seems to be falling apart. And there's times when I've actually prayed and said, God, give them a break. Like, cut them some slack, God. Like, you know what's going on. Like, just give them a little hope here in the midst of this. So I don't know what your situation is like today. Maybe you can relate to King David. It isn't just one thing that's wrong right now, but maybe it's like a host of things. So what do we do? That's a great question, so let's keep unpacking this song. Look at verse 3. We know about the many. He said it three times. And so he's not being pie-in-the-sky theoretical. He's being practical, down-to-earth. This is what's going on in my life. Then we get to verse 3. And verse 3 says, But you, God, are a shield. Now here's a statement you probably don't hear too often from the front of a church. But I love the buts in Scripture. I just do. David has shared the problems that he's facing, and it's no small laundry list of concerns. He has a growing number of enemies plotting his demise. He has people scoffing at his faith in God. He is, or he was, the king, but he isn't in a kingly situation right now. He's on the run from his own son. But I'm so happy for verse 3. David says, But you are a shield around me. 
in the midst of the problems that David has, in the midst of the storms that are coming through his life and flowing all in the wrong direction for everything that's going on, David stops. And remember, the scholars think that this was penned on the morning that he was actually going to go into battle against his son. And he says just very early on in these few verses that he's writing down, but I've got these forces arrayed against me. I've got a growing number of enemies that are coming against me. I've got people all around me who are saying, God doesn't work, my friend. But... If you want to do an interesting word study in Scripture, just study the word but and see what you come up with. Let me give you one other but in Scripture. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus has got his disciples with him. And he says this to Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith would not fail. Simon, Satan's coming your way, my friend. He's asked for permission to do some things with you. But, Simon, I want you to know that I've interceded on your behalf. How, how different is that verse? Because Jesus, when he's looking at his good friend Simon, and he adds that word in, he says, Simon, this is what's going on, but... Let's just stop for a moment. Let's take stock. I want you to know something. This is important, Simon. In the midst of this, I want you to know that I've prayed for you. Wow. We have this picture of the enemies of David growing and causing untold grief in his life. But, but what? what but David's focus all of a sudden changes. Because the reality is, is that his circumstance at this point in time as he's writing this weird, these words has not changed, okay? So in the midst of the storm, it's raging all around him. David says, but you, God, are a shield all around me. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. What is David talking about? David doesn't even have the throne anymore. He's had to run away from Jerusalem. Well picture is the enemies are all there they're causing untold grief and David has a moment where he says but but there's a shield he says this is what my reality is but there's a shield and there's more he says not only are you a shield Lord but you bestow glory on me and you lift up my head that word glory actually refers to weight it's a it's a word talking about battle because when the men went out to battle at that point in time in history they went out with as light a uh, amount of of uh, weight as they could take because they wanted to be agile they wanted to be able to fight and so they just took the necessary weapons but on the way back after they won the victory they come back with the weight of glory on them and that's simply all of the plunder that they've taken from the battle and so they come back with this weight this glory and God says David speaking of God he says you bestow glory on me you bestow a weight on me it's a good weight it's a victory and I'm not going to go with I'm not going to come back in with my head bowed down in shame but rather it's like God takes David's head and lifts it up and says David come on Let's look at what's going on here. We're going to carry the weight of glory back into Jerusalem. You're not going to return with your head bowed in shame, but you're going to return with your head held high in victory and confidence. And so David, at this moment, as he's penning this psalm, he simply is saying to us, look, I know who's in charge. 
So let me ask this question. Do we today know who's in charge? In the midst of the storm. Do we actually know who's in charge? As we walk through these roads and these pathways and these journeys and these moments in life that we did not choose nor do we want, do we still at that point in time know who it is that is in charge? Because it's important as we follow along this psalm because when we know who's in charge, then we can move to verse 4. Because verse 4 and verse 7 carry the cry of David's heart. Remember, it's the morning of. He's going out in the battle against Absalom, his son. He's got all these thousands who are arrayed against him. He's given us the button, verse 3. And now in verse 4, it says, To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. Jump down to verse 7. He calls on God, and he says, Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw and break the teeth of the wicked. You see, this option is always available to us in the midst of the storm, verse 4 and verse 7. David knew who was in charge. That's why he was able to write verse 3, You're a shield about me. You're going to lead me out in victory. He knew who was in charge. And then he cries out to this one who's in charge. And it's not a quiet, passive prayer in his own mind. This is a cry heard from the heart of a man that is vocalized. He knows he needs God's help. And so he cries out. Now, again, the context is important because... As we read earlier in 2 Samuel 15, Absalom's been at this for years, working on this plan to usurp the throne from his father. And so we didn't get to this verse, but in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30, we read this. David continued up. This is as he's seen Absalom get his plan all fleshed out. It says, David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and he was barefoot. This is the king. This is the ruler. And his son has just moved in with a master plan that's been years in the making and has taken over. And David leaves. And it says later on that those with him were also weeping and they were barefoot. The sense of shame and defeat. And then David gets to Psalm 3 where he's got some perspective he sat down, he's finished the crying, and now he's looked at what his circumstances really are. He's been honest. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that. Verse 3, he gives us the great butt of the psalm. Verse 4 now, he gives us the response that now he's not just weeping anymore. Now he's crying aloud to God to come. In the midst of David's storm, he turns to the one he trusts. To the Lord I cry aloud. And he answers me from his holy hill. That's a picture of authority. And then David asks this of God in verse 7. Arise, O Lord. So there's this picture of God ruling and reigning from his throne. And David says, God, I need you to arise. I need you to step up. I need you to deal with the situation that is at hand. And God hears him. From his position of absolute authority... God, here's the prayer of King David, a prayer of a man who's in trouble. God has watched as Absalom has schemed and sought to destroy his very own father. And God didn't miss one of his evil steps as he charted out a course to ruin the king that God had ordained to be in that place. And then God waited for David to call on him. 
Do you believe God hears your prayers in the midst of your storm? Do you have that kind of relationship with God that you just know from a trust standpoint that when the going gets really, really difficult, heartbreaking, and life-challenging, that that very moment, there's this God who hears your prayer. If you want a little pick-me-up this afternoon, then go to Google and Google the Watoto Children's Choir. It's a choir from Africa. Several of my churches, I've had them in to, to come and sing. And there's a song one year that was their featured song, and the song was called, I Am Not Forgotten. And the chorus of the song simply says, I am not forgotten, I am not forgotten, I am not forgotten, because God knows my name. These are orphans singing this song. These are children who have lost absolutely everything in life that is near and dear to them, and they sing this song with such a passion that comes out of a heart that we, by virtue of our own life circumstances, can hardly barely understand. And they sing it by saying so many times over and over again with crowd after crowd that they did it that year, I am not forgotten. You see, God knows my name. Do we actually believe that? Do you really believe that God knows your name? Because he does. He really and truly does. And he loves you. I always marvel when there's a room full of children playing with mums nearby and inevitably one child will get hurt and start to cry and what happens is that one woman rises out of the group and goes, why? Because you see, she knows the cry of her own child. Do you believe that out of the great mass of humanity that when you cry out, God actually knows your cry? David calls for God in verse 7 to arise and to act. Do we believe this morning that God cares enough about our storm, our life, our circumstances to actually arise and act? Have you been praying and yet nothing seems to be happening? Is the enemy telling you that God doesn't hear? God may not even care? God doesn't really know you? God's too busy for your little storm that you're in? That's the spiritual battle that we face. Keep calling out to your Heavenly Father because He hears from His holy hill and He will act when the time is right or He will give you the strength to get through that current storm that you are in. Don't mistake His silence for a lack of care or concern. He is right there with you in the storm. What does David do next? Look at verse 5. He's identified his reality. He's given us the great but. He's cried out to God. And now comes verse 5. I lie down and I sleep. And I wake again because the Lord sustains me. After praying, David sleeps. Why is that important to note? Because you see, it's a position of trust. He has prayed and now he trusts that his life is actually in God's hands. And David knows that Absalom's not the ultimate destiny of what's going to happen in his life. Absalom's his reality, yes. But Absalom's not going to dictate what will happen to David. God will dictate what will happen to David. 
And he puts his trust fully in that and he puts his head down and he goes to sleep. He's rested knowing that he's left his requests with God. And he says, I woke again because the Lord sustained me. Not Absalom, not all the things around me, but by God. David knew where his help came from. He has complete trust in his God in the midst of the storm that is all around him. And even though there is no resolution at this time, David is still able to trust and sleep. Look what he goes on to say in verse 6. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Wow. Why can David be this confident? Why can David sleep in the midst of his storm? It's simply because he's had a lifetime of walking with, journeying with, and trusting God in the midst of all the other circumstances of his life. Do we have that growing relationship with our Father? that as the storm clouds would assemble around in our life, that we could actually call out to him and then lie down and sleep. Can we say that even though the storm may get worse, as David says in verse 6, I already know who's above and beyond my storm. You see, David isn't focused on his enemy. He makes it clear that the forces against him are sizable, but here's where we need to learn from King David. How can he say that he will not fear even though there are tens of thousands against him? It's because he spent time with the Almighty. There's this great story in, in 2 Kings chapter 6 of Elisha. And I, I just love this so much because it's a prayer I want to pray for you as we wind up this morning in just a few moments' time. In 2 Kings chapter 6, uh, Elisha is in some kind of trouble. And so in verse 8 it says, Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. And after conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. And the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on that place indicated by the man of God. And time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. And he summoned all of his officers and demanded of them, Will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words that you speak in your bedroom. And so the king says, go and find out where he is, the king ordered, so that I can send men and capture him. And the report came back, he is in Dothan. And then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there, and they went by night and they surrounded the city. Now listen to this. When Elisha's servant got up and went out early the next morning. An army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. And he comes back and he says, Oh, Elisha, my Lord, what should we do? The servant asked. And here's what Elisha says. Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. But he knew his servant couldn't see this. So listen to his prayer in verse 17. And it says, And Elisha prayed, Oh, Lord, open his eyes so he may see so that my servant may see. I already see all the enemies that are arrayed against me. I already see the storm that is raging around me. But what does Elisha want him to see? It says, Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of chariots of fire all around Elisha. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. A hundred times wow. That Elisha had this incredible trust because he believed in a God who was bigger than the storm. And when the whole city was surrounded and the servant goes out and says, we're doomed, that's too big of a force, we'll never win. Elisha prays this prayer and says, God, just open his eyes because I already know what's going on, but I want him to see. 
I want us to know this morning that we've got this ally. I want us to know that there are promises in this book that God will never walk away from. I want our eyes to be open to see that there are more people for us in the spiritual realm than there are against us. I want you to remember that each and every step that you take through the storm is a step that our God takes with you. He is the Lord God Almighty. He walks on water. You can trust him. The conclusion is verse 8. It's a statement of fact and a request. The statement of fact is simply that deliverance comes from God. He says salvation comes from the Lord. He knows that. David knows that. He's experienced it. And then in the midst of the storm, God has not forgotten your name. He's called you deliverer. And then David has this request. And the request actually closes off the psalm. And remember, he's going to write this. He's going to put his pen down. And he's going to walk out into battle against his son. And so what's his last request that he makes of God? He says, God, I pray that you'd bless your people. It's like David says to God, I want you to use this circumstance that I'm in to end up pouring out a blessing upon others. And even as we sit here this morning, David's words in some respects, are fulfilled again and again. As we listen to what King David did and how he lived, and then we say, yeah, I want to live that same way, and it's like God's blessing comes again upon us. From the Lord comes deliverance, and may your blessing be on your people. We don't often get to choose our storms. We don't get to choose when they come. We don't often get to choose when our storms are finished. We simply get to choose how we're going to live in the midst of our storms. David acknowledged the reality of his storm. David reminded us that there's always a but in the storm. David chose to focus on the shield that was around him and not on the storm itself. David had a relationship that was established that he turned to in the midst of the storm. And within that relationship, within that relationship, David was able to trust God and ask him to bless those around him. I don't think it's a bad formula on how to, how to walk through the storms in our own lives. The worship team is going to come up and lead us in a closing song.